so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Is that where we're going to leave it? Is that the end? Wherever Gary cuts it? That's okay. where we're leaving it. I'm, I'm done. <laughs> Gary, I hope you cut it a long time before this. All right. We're just going to do the outro. Please. Please do the outro. End this podcast. <laughs> oh, my word. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the URLC Podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the URLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me on the podcast today are my co-hosts, Lindy Nicolay. Hi, everybody. And Brent Leatherwood. Hey, y'all. School has restarted, and I'm already exhausted. Yeah, uh, I'm sure we'll get into that because it is a wild time with uh, school starting and stopping and you know all kinds of things going on. But it's good to be back for another week on the podcast. We are later in the show going to talk to a special guest, uh, Michael Sobolik, who is the husband of our colleague, Chelsea Sobolik, who's joined us on the podcast uh, many times. But Lindsay, so that we can get into what's going on, tell us what the ERLC has been talking about this week. Hey, so as always, we have a lot of great articles, I think, uh, just because of the writers and the contributors that we have to our site. But we have a special emphasis this week on China and Hong Kong in order to raise awareness of the various human rights violations that are happening in China. So first off, I want to mention a piece by Travis Wusso, our vice president of policy, who's out of our D.C. office. His article is titled, What Hong Kong Reveals About the Future of China. Travis actually took a trip to Hong Kong, and um, he was documenting, along with a, a filmmaker, videographer, some of what's happening in Hong Kong, which China is trying to undermine um, Hong Kong's autonomy and the system that they had been operating under, which was one country, two systems. And they made this fabulous video, but actually what Travis says in his article is that uh, we wanted to release it this week, but we weren't able because of how volatile the situation has become. Many of the Hong Kongers who were interviewed on this film uh, are afraid of the Chinese Communist Party. And so, um, again, I would encourage you to read this article to be aware of uh, the motivations of the Chinese Communist Party and what that means for millions of people around the world. So because of this special emphasis on China, our special guest today is Michael Sobolik. Well, he has an article along with his wife, our colleague, Chelsea Sobolik, on our site this week. That brings to light another human rights violation of the Chinese Communist Party, and that's about how they are persecuting the Uyghur Muslims. So uh, they are a minority group, and Michael and Chelsea tell us that since 2017, the Chinese Communist Party has waged a systemic campaign of oppression and persecution against Uyghur Muslims, putting them in camps, forcing um, abortions, just terrible things, um, surveillance, thought control, re-education, uh, compulsory labor. So life for many of these Uyghur Muslims is a nightmare. And though we may not be on the same 
page as them ideologically and worldview-wise, we still want to see the human dignity of every person on the planet being upheld. We want to see them treated with the dignity and the grace that they deserve. And this is no way to treat anyone, regardless of how we disagree with them. That's right, Lindsay. And, uh, you know, Dr. Moore this week, he was he was talking about the fact that uh, he wants to make sure that the ERLC is continually standing up for human dignity uh, across the globe and uh, wants us to be a voice combating instances of of persecution uh, and and where the state uh, is is trying to run roughshod uh, over the the consciences of people and over uh, their religious freedoms. And that, that's happening in a number of different contexts, but chiefly on the international stage. The, the most alarming instance where that is happening right now is in China, particularly as it relates to uh, the treatment, uh, the oppressive treatment uh, against Uyghur Muslims. And so I am, I am really excited uh, that we are putting a spotlight uh, on this issue with um, the online uh, event that's taking place Friday that uh, we've got multiple uh, folks lined up for, and, and Dr. Moore will, will be on the panel. Uh, we've seen a, a really good response uh, since we've announced it, and um, this is going to be something that we continually make the case for in the public square in the weeks and months to come. That's really good, Brent, because what we're talking about fundamentally are human rights violations, uh, China's communist government is an authoritarian regime that is oppressing right now more than one million Uyghur Muslims. Uh, they are persecuting them because they are a religious minority that whose you know beliefs and worldview is out of step with the ideology that that drives the Communist Party in China. And we're seeing the same kind of oppression or same. Uh, ideology uh, leading to the oppression of Hong Kong. And so what's going on right now uh, in Asia, in China, it is a human rights crisis. And it is something that, you know, the ERLC we've been talking about, we will continue to talk about and do whatever we can uh, to in encourage uh, not just our own government and Christians around the world, uh, but for everyone to be able to see this for what it is and to stand up against this kind of oppression. You know, and it reminds me of... Uh World War II and uh, what led up to that, the uh, the persecution of the Jewish people and what can happen with an authoritarian regime if the rest of the world remains silent. And so, Brent, you you addressed the video that went viral of these some of these Uyghur Muslims and what was going on uh, a couple weeks ago on our show. And so thankfully, we have technology that enables us to get a window into these things these days so that we cannot close our eyes. So again, I would encourage you to check out these articles. Uh, Chelsea and Michael have some practical steps that we can take because you might be thinking as a listener, I'm just one person. I know that's what I think. What can I even do about this, you know? Uh, but but of course, we can always pray. They call us to prayer, and we know that the Lord works through the prayers of his people, and they give some other steps that we can take. And then finally, pivoting to a, a different topic, but uh, no less important, is an article by our colleague Alex Ward, and he has an explainer about some of the newest technology to hit the reproductive front, and that's IVG. And he says it's the newest technological threat to the family structure. So um, IVG is a form of in vitro. I'm not going to try to pronounce the rest of it because I would probably mutilate the pronunciation. But basically, it allows one person, two people, 
to men, to women, for individuals, it could be endless, to be able to create a baby from um, from the, uh, any cell from any portion of their body, skin, muscle, organ. So you could see how this is a major problem because it totally undermines and undercuts God's creational design and order. And anytime we try to do that, we know that really bad things happen. So he highlights this, he tells us the problems, and I think it's a really helpful explainer because a lot of times we... Um, the desire to have children is a very good thing, um, but a lot of times we don't sit there and think ethically through what the repercussions are or um, or even the morality of what we would do to be able to have children is. And as Christians, we have to be thoughtful about these things, and we have to be the leaders speaking um, with compassion, but also with conviction. That was just, an, I think, an excellent summation of the the ethical uh, quandary here, the ethical uh, issues. And the reality is, you're exactly right. Most people are not thinking deeply enough about what it is that's going on here. Well, and again, it's because it's a tender issue. As Alex points out, it is just devastating effect of the fall that those who want to have children, which is a God-ordained desire, can't have children. That is heartbreaking and hard. And so it is, it affects people in real ways and deep, deep into their souls. Uh, but still, we have to be willing to be men and women who come and submit ourselves to the Word and to the wisdom of the Word and how we live out these situations in our complex culture. That's really well said, Lindsay. Uh, as someone whose family has you know, struggled through infertility and gone through adoption, uh, I understand, like, my, my heart aches for people who find themselves uh, seeking to have children and for whatever reason what, uh, or complications are present, that's just not uh, a possibility. That is an incredibly difficult situation to find yourself in, but I think that that doesn't, uh, that, that doesn't negate our responsibility to think carefully and biblically about what steps are appropriate to, you know, seek to fulfill that longing. And so uh, this explainer from Alex really touches on that. It does. And as in all things, Alex points out, just because we can do something doesn't mean we should do something. And that's going to be true of a lot of things as we move further and further into the 21st century and beyond. So again, this is just a taste of some of the articles at our site this week. Um, I think that they will benefit the church, help educate and equip us to be able to um, provide a sound witness and a kind witness for the Lord. Um, but as far as these articles go, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Hey, thanks, Lindsay. And that brings us to our culture section for the week. So Brent, tell us what's going on. All right. So I mentioned school earlier. So school has officially restarted here in the, the Leatherwood household. I'm already exhausted because I can just tell 2020 is going to come and find our school and and exhaust us. <laughs> uh, but it's it, it's probably something that a lot of families are feeling around the country, especially if you have kids matriculating at a local university, or maybe not even a local university, maybe a, a far away university. Because right now, it looks like uh, as colleges are opening up their campuses, they are wrestling with the spread of COVID-19. Uh, in their schools. So uh, this week, USA Today reported that the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill 
uh, on Monday became the first major college to pivot to online classes after reopening in person. Josh, I know as a as a big UNC fan, this probably hits a little close to home for you. Uh, but the uh, the amazing thing is the reversal took one week. <laughs> Students were only there for one week, and already they've had to make a major U-turn uh, at, at UNC. So the, the report indicates that since the university started courses in person on August 10th, it has reported at least four clusters of outbreaks in student living spaces. I mean, if, if I were the parent of one of these kids, <laughs> I'd probably be losing my mind right now. And the, the reality is this week, uh, it wasn't just UNC. Uh, Notre Dame and Michigan State also both announced moves designed to slow the spread of coronavirus on their campuses. Notre Dame is canceling in-person classes and moving them online for at least two weeks after seeing a surge in cases. So on Monday, one week after classes began, 80 students tested positive out of 418 uh, or 19 percent of the students that were tested, which is a, a big uh, leap from where they were testing, which was around two percent. And Michigan State University president um, this week asked students who were planning to move into the school's dorms to stay home. Don't don't do that. Uh, so uh, we've got three major universities here uh, that are are having to quickly readjust their on-campus plans after just a handful of days with classes going on. Listen, there are lots of potential in college students, and this totally stinks, but there's lots of irresponsibility that goes along with college students as well. So I'm not surprised that colleges are the first to fall. Well, and look, I know that you're speaking from personal experience. You went to the University of Florida, which aren't they like annually ranked as the number one party school in the nation? I was at uh, the Baptist Collegiate Ministries. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, I, I know that BCM is uh, is big in in Gainesville, so that's that's great to hear, Lindsay. Well, there was some polling that came out this week. Uh, Axios was reporting that as the coronavirus pandemic pushes more and more universities to switch to remote learning, at least to begin the year with, twenty two percent of college students, one in five across all four years, are planning not to enroll this fall. And as more and more universities open up, experts expect similar decisions to be made across the country. I mean, our, our universities and colleges are going to feel a financial pinch from this if, if one in five uh, students are not coming to school and enrolling and giving them tuition dollars. Yeah, I mean, this was something that I guess, you know, in 2020, I expect everything to you know, not go the way that you expect it to. But um, looking at this, it's really not surprising. I don't know this is for all kinds of reasons, but thinking back again to just the fact that we're already having, you know, coronavirus issues pop up on college campuses, what's happening there is you have college students who are behaving like many college students do. You know, they're there for the experience. They're there to spend time together and enjoy, uh, you know, whatever kinds of things are going on. BCM. You know, yeah, BCM, also hanging out, also parties. Whatever those things that they're doing, and so they're they're finding themselves in situations where uh, we have active spread. At the same time, you have a lot of college students who are going, "Hey, do I really want to spend the time or the money to just sit at home and be in front of my computer all the time? Could I just delay this for a year and really not rob myself of the college experience?" I'm sure some people are about to graduate and they're just trying to make it through in any way possible. But it's it's really not surprising, although I do, I understand it's going to put a lot of these uh, institutions in a financial bind. 
Yeah, not to belittle the financial bind, uh, but what a bummer that these students who aren't enrolling, you know, usually you don't enroll in college because you take a gap year and you travel or you do something, uh, have some kind of an experience that you wouldn't be able to have if you went straight into college. But you can't do that. You sit at home. It, your gap year is you sitting at home in your pajamas that is the, watching That is the Netflix. struggle. <laughs> your gap year from your house. Just, well, uh, I, there was one tidbit in the poll that I thought I thought was good. So of those students who are not enrolling, 73% are planning to to work uh, at a at a job, so they they won't be just sitting at home in their parents' basement. It's true, but even a gap year just to work, I know it's responsible, but it just doesn't sound as exciting as traveling the world, Brent. That's right. Well, so it was a big uh, week on the college campus front. It was also a big week on the political front. The uh, twenty twenty campaign moved on as the. Democrats convened their virtual national convention this week. Speakers throughout the week have included former Republican presidential candidate. That's right. This is the DNC. Speakers this week have included, at the Democratic National Convention, former Republican presidential candidate John Kasich, socialist Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, former First Lady Michelle Obama, and on Wednesday, former President Barack Obama. Uh, On Wednesday of this week, Democrats formally nominated Senator Kamala Harris for the vice presidential nomination, placing a woman of color on a major party ticket for the first time and showcasing the diversity of race and gender they believe will energize their coalition to defeat President Trump this fall, reports the New York Times. She followed shortly after President Obama's remarks, who gave an impassioned and some would say foreboding warning about the upcoming election. To quote President Obama, this president and those in power, those who benefit from keeping things the way that they are, are counting on your cynicism, said Obama. On Thursday night, former Vice President Joe Biden took to the stage to close out the 2020 DNC and formally accept the nomination for president. So this was, uh, I mean, this Democratic National Convention, uh, the Republicans come next week and they're probably going to have many of the same virtual elements that we saw. I mean, I got to tell you, in in a in a crazy year, I actually thought that the the presentation itself w- was actually pretty good, uh, pretty compelling uh, television. Um, you know, typically these conventions, you, you see a lot of people wearing funny hats, and that's not that's not just Texans. And uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of a lot of shouting uh, from uh, the audience uh, as the the folks give their speeches, and and so obviously we lost a lot of that. But uh, in its place, uh, we got some uh, really interesting uh, speeches, I would say. Yeah, Brian, it was really interesting. Obviously, nothing like this has ever been done before. And as we watched all of these different digital elements take place, uh, one of the cool things was, you know, they do this roll call where all of the various states are pledging their delegates. And in this case, it, it got to showcase in a special way, instead of just having people stand by a poll that has the name of their state on it, or, you know, potentially, you know, wearing something that signifies where they're from, they're literally, you know, shooting on scene somewhere from their state and showcasing something special about them as they are pledging their delegates. That was a really cool feature. 
Yeah. And to go along with that, one of the other aspects that I thought was commendable is they, even in this time of, of isolation and, and distancing, they sent, uh, you know, kind of many versions of the uh, recording equipment that you need uh, so that folks at home, uh, just regular delegates, uh, could participate just like they would have at an actual physical convention. And I thought that that was great that they figured out ways to uh, incorporate that element. Overall, the production, uh, I think, was pretty seamless. And, you know, uh, for Democrats, you're basically just looking to get through this in a, in a you know, technical way without any major mishaps. And, and that's what they did. Uh, so uh, they have now uh, put out their presentation uh, and, and Republicans will follow suit next week. And, uh, and we'll be able to compare uh, how the, the two respective parties did. Meanwhile, President Trump spent part of his daily coronavirus briefing on Wednesday answering a question about the online conspiracy theory QAnon. Now, if you haven't heard about this, we actually surfaced uh, a few weeks ago, actually maybe it was a couple months ago, uh, a report on QAnon uh, for folks who may not be familiar with it, uh, why this is in fact a conspiracy theory. But uh, President Trump said from the podium when asked, uh, would, you know, would he disavow uh, the, the conspiracy theory? Uh, he said that I've heard these are people that love our country. Uh, so he, he clearly did not want to uh, take a proactive step in, uh, in disavowing uh, QAnon, uh, which some analysts have referred to the conspiracy theory as, as dangerous. And uh, I would say as, as Christians— we should, we should be people who are not given uh, to conspiracy theories. What say y'all? This is definitely one of my like hobby horses in terms of topics. I think that Christians should have really nothing to do with conspiracy theories. Uh, and in this case, it is really sad to me that we've seen so many evangelicals be caught up in the QAnon conspiracy. Fortunately, there's been some really good reporting that has come out this week uh, talking about uh, QAnon and trying to help shed light on this conversation. And so, you know, I think it is unfortunate that, you know, we've seen uh, recently uh, people who are openly, you know, supporting uh, this conspiracy theory uh, win elections. I, I just don't think that this is the kind of thing that we need to breathe any life into at all. Josh, you're absolutely right about uh, some reporting that's come out this week. Uh, in particular, I'm reminded there was an NBC News uh, article that came out that that kind of traced the initial origins if you will, of, of QAnon to three people who are literally trying to profit off of the spread of this uh, disinformation uh, uh, to, to line their pockets, which, again, it just shows that there are grifters behind this that are trying to take advantage of people who actually, I, I, I get uh, why it could be um, alluring, if you will, to, to get into this because you there is so much uncertainty in the world right now and you're you're trying to figure out like okay who's actually got some answers uh here and this conspiracy theory presents itself as as someone who actually knows the truth but that just gets even more to our point that as Christians we already know the truth uh, and so we don't necessarily have to be beholden to these online investigative searches uh, to uh, uncover the truth. We're, we're not X-Files people here 
uh, where the truth is out there. We, we actually have the truth, and it's in the book in front of us. That's exactly right. You know, the Bible says to put not your trust in princes. How much more do you not put trust in random people throwing things onto the internet? This is something that for Christians you should you should stay away from because you know that the only sovereign force in the universe is the God who put all things in motion and knows the end from the beginning. There is no person out there who has their finger on the dial that can tell you what's coming next. And so investing your time or energy into this is at best, it is foolishness. And if I can just put one more, you know, caveat out there, I would just say that, you know, when you see people post these long missives that have all of these random details in them, I've seen many, many of those even related to QAnon. And when you see these things, having a bunch of things that look like facts piled together doesn't make them true. So the popular phrase with QAnon is do your own research. My, my encouragement to you would be do your research. If you see any of this stuff and you're actually intrigued by it, just fact check it because most of it doesn't hold up under scrutiny. Well, and what y'all were saying brought to mind Paul's words, which I just looked up here on the handy dandy ESV site. But First Timothy 4, 7 says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness you know, we're to be training ourselves for godliness, not training ourselves to be able to answer these silly, irreverent myths. And 2 Timothy 2.23 says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And that's certainly what's happening now with these controversies that many Christians find themselves uh, delving into. Yeah, that's, uh, that's absolutely right. And look, just again, we live in uncertain times. We live in a challenging moment. As one pastor friend uh, said once in his sermon, get off of the Facebook and get your eyes in the good book, uh, because you will not be led astray uh, with, with, uh, with Scripture. So, good talk there. All right, in California this week, Axios reports that the, uh, about the wildfire outbreak that is taking place there. Gosh, folks in California have just had it rough recently. California Governor Gavin Newsom declared a statewide emergency Tuesday to address multiple wildfires that are scorching the state during an extreme heat wave. At least 30 wildfires are currently ablaze across California. Nearly a dozen of the fires started over the past two days thanks to excessive heat and lightning from a tropical storm, storm system in the Pacific Ocean. I, I've I've never lived through a wildfire, but I actually drove um, close to one, I guess you could say, uh, back in 2016 when the Smokies were lit up uh, just uh, north of uh, Sevierville and Pigeon Forge in Gatlinburg. Um, That was amazing to see. I I could not imagine actually seeing my house go up in flames, though. On the economic side, we got some less than stellar news this week. Uh, The Associated Press is reporting that uh, the coronavirus recession struck swiftly and violently. And now with the economy still in the grip of the pandemic five months later, the recovery looks fitful and uneven and painfully slow. The latest evidence, uh, the AP reports, came Thursday with the government's report that the number of workers seeking U.S. unemployment benefits rose back above 1 million last week after after two consecutive weeks of decline. So it it seemed like we were slowly inching our way down, but this week um, uh, the unemployment numbers spiked up again. That's very disappointing, obviously, on the unemployment side of things. 
Moving to the world of SBC life, we have a sad update to report uh, from last week. Uh, we talked about last week uh, the the wife of a pastor who went missing uh, somewhere outside of Memphis. Well, the biblical recorder reports that the vehicle of Marilyn Carter, a pastor's wife who had been missing more than two weeks, was found August 18th uh, with the body of a deceased female inside. Uh, a family member discovered the car while searching the area where Carter was last known to have been. Uh, so that is just a, a heartbreaking uh, update uh, to this story that we talked about a couple weeks ago. You know, heart goes out to this family, and we'd ask you to pray for them. And the other thing that uh, came out of a lot of these conversations is just reminding people that, especially for your pastors, people who are in ministry and whose job it is to, you know, for them and their family, they try to exercise spiritual care uh, for the church and for believers. Uh, pray for those people. Lift lift them up in your prayers because they're still human beings. They still face discouragement uh, and and go through uh, really difficult times. And so, uh, if this can be a reminder for us to uh, to lift those people up in prayer and to exercise care for them as they care for us, I, I think that I think that that's certainly appropriate. That's right. That's right. All right, and uh, another update to a story that I think we reported on back in the in the spring, I think it was. So Baptist Press reports a Dallas boy whose father says is content as a boy may now face transgender therapy after a district court judge gave the child's mother full conservatorship, uh, according to multiple reports. Without holding a scheduled hearing, a Dallas District Court judge, Mary Brown, on August 10th, reversed her earlier ruling that upheld joint conservatorship for both parents who divorced in 2015 when James was three. The son is one of twin boys. Uh, so uh, obviously the, the father does not think that transgender therapy is, is something that his son should undergo, and uh, the, the mother... Uh, apparently thinks differently. And uh, this, uh, you know, if this moves forward, uh, potentially is going to have uh, major ramifications for this life. Honestly, it's outrageous. You know, we're talking about a child who is less than 10 years old, who is, you know, being honestly uh, subjected to adults trying to influence, uh, you know, his behavior and, and point him in a direction. This is a child who is impressionable, who is still in the earliest stages of human development, and who is is not capable of, of making the kinds of decisions that are right now uh, being either forced on him or encouraged in ways that are absolutely detrimental uh, to who God made him as a person. And so this is obviously an incredibly sad thing uh, for us to see. All right. So given those two very uh, heavy updates, let's end on a, on a lighter note. Uh, who remembers Blockbuster? Hmm? Uh, did you know that there is actually one Blockbuster left and it's in Bend, Oregon? All right. Well, it turns out that you can stay a night at this Blockbuster video uh, through a unique partnership that Blockbuster, this, this one final store, has now with Airbnb. It's letting you rent it out and have a sleepover in it. They've got a nice little comfy couch. You fold out the, the bed. There are th only three quarantine pods of four people that are going to get to experience this very unique uh, setting. 
as the blockbuster is only available on Airbnb for three nights in September. But in the advertising for it, it says you can crack open a two liter of Pepsi and it's got all of the retro 90s accoutrements that uh, that you would expect for a blockbuster night. So yeah, isn't this just kind of stirring the echoes in your heart from your childhood, y'all? I mean, I got to say, it gives me all the feels. I remember every weekend, especially on weekends where we're going to anticipating bad weather or something, we would go to Blockbuster on a Friday night. You could spend an hour looking at all the videos, trying to make make a choice. Be kind, rewind was like, you know, a phrase that was just always used. I'm probably not going to make the trip or make the play for this uh, too, because it's not worth making the trip to Bend, <laughs> Oregon for it. But man, if it was like here in Nashville, I probably would try because you would try. There's just so much nostalgia wrapped up in that. You would try and make it a blockbuster night. I'd make oh, it a blockbuster word. night. <laughs> if you just want a blockbuster night, don't Turn worry. Turn on Netflix. Apparently, some small towns. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know, but it's the experience of actually going to the store that you're missing out on. Uh, but apparently throughout the Midwest in like some small, quaint Midwestern towns, uh, there still exists family videos, family video stores uh, where, where you can walk in and, and have that, that experience and, and maybe pick up some Pizza Hut on the way home. Josh, Lindsay, uh, that's your look at This Week in Culture. So now we're about to talk to our friend, uh, Michael Sobolik. Michael is married, as we mentioned at the top of the show, to our colleague, Chelsea Sobolik, who works in our DC office. And Michael is also a foreign policy expert. And so we're excited to talk to him about a range of things, including what's going on in China. So Michael, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to have you on the podcast. As we're getting started, would you just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Absolutely. And hey, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I uh, long respected uh, ERLC as an organization. And uh, I, I'm a little biased because my better half uh, is employed <laughs> at ERLC. But uh, e- even if that weren't the case, I'd have uh, nothing but great things to say about y'all. So it's a pleasure to be here. So I am a, a native Texan by birth, and I uh, live in Washington, D.C. now. And I uh, coming off a, a five-year stint on Capitol Hill. I worked uh, in the Senate from 2014 to 2019. Uh, and I worked for uh, Senator Ted Cruz from Texas, and I was his aide on China and uh, Indo-Pacific policy. And then in last year, I hopped off the hill and uh, am now basically the equivalent of a professional nerd in, in think tank world at the American Foreign Policy Council. And my work here uh, continues to center on the Indo-Pacific China specifically, which for obvious reasons has been a, a topic of hot debate and a big relevance lately, but uh, been been here for almost a year now. So, Michael, you just mentioned China, and we're going to get to that in a moment. But before we do, could you tell us what made you interested in foreign policy and specifically what made you get involved in Asia policy? Absolutely. So tracing that, I think, probably takes us back. I feel so old saying this now, but probably 10 years ago. So I, in, in 2010, I was a, a rising senior in college and was in the process of applying for an internship abroad program at my alma mater, Texas A&M. And I was four hours uh, ahead of the application deadline. I had all these plans to go to the UK and study there. It, 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 it was going to be my first time to travel anywhere outside of America. 
And four hours before the deadline, the, uh, my university called me and said, look, we're so sorry, but the uh, we mixed up the dates. The UK de- uh, deadline has passed and you have four hours to pick a new country before you apply. And I at first I kind of threw up my hands because I had no idea what to do. So called my dad and said, hey, I, I need to pick a new country and I need to pick one fast. And China was one of the countries on the list. And I had no prior familiarity at all with China. And my dad said at the time, uh, if you live in the 21st century and you care about politics, go there. Went there, spent five weeks, uh, a couple days in Beijing, but most of the time was in Xi'an, which is uh, inland China. And did some traveling within the province, lived with host families there, and had a wonderful time. First time to travel, and it, it was just wonderful. And uh, I was already interested in politics before that trip, but I think the time I spent there broadened my perspective uh, to think not just about domestic policy, but America's interests abroad, uh, national security, what protecting the American people and standing for uh, American principles actually looks like. And uh, it was shortly after that that I uh, decided to go to graduate school to focus specifically on U.S.-China relations, uh, which then uh, kind of led into a, the, the D.C. Uh, chapter that I'm in now. But at that time in China w- was really formative for me. All right. So what a piece of like prescient uh, advice that you got to go that route. It uh, it lends a lot of credibility to uh, to the uh, uh, adage. Uh, lis- listen to your parents, <laughs> and um, I've I've been blessed with a mom and a dad who who've been just steady rocks the whole time. And and dad definitely steered me right that time for sure. That's great to hear. All right, so well, let's talk about your area of expertise, uh, China. There has been a lot going on there. Uh, so can you help our audience uh, help our audience out uh, and understand just everything that has happened there? Like give us a broad overview uh, of the last six months in China. Oh man, picking one place to start here uh, is is hard enough when you're familiar or at least have a working familiarity with what's going on. but for folks who are living in the middle of this pandemic, the amount of headlines that all of us are wading through is is incredibly uh, overwhelming and it's easy to feel inundated, right? So obviously China has been on that on everyone's radar, especially starting around March when the pandemic really became an actual thing here in America. And a lot of breaking news about China, not only is it pandemic related, but there's also a lot of uh, other issues like Hong Kong has been in the news a lot lately, and there have been a, a number of increasing articles about uh, religious freedom in Western China, in uh, Xinjiang uh, territory specifically. And the challenge, I think, is, is to look at all of these different trends. And and that, that's not even talking about trade tariffs, right, and, and, and what all that looks like now. So the key is, how is all of this connected, and, and what does all of it mean? So... I think it's helpful to zoom out and and look at the broader trajectory of U.S.-China relations, because honestly, more has changed in the past three months than in the past three decades with with the U.S. and China. So uh, 1972 is a good reference point, even as as far past as it is. Uh, That was when President Nixon went to China uh, 
and met with Mao Zedong and established America's policy of engagement with the People's Republic of China and by extension, the Chinese Communist Party. And the gamble, the wager that Nixon and successive presidents and both parties after him was making is that if we can trade with China and help them grow wealthy and develop within the community of nations that America built after World War II, uh, the thinking would be that not only would China grow economically, but that they would change and even liberalize politically. And uh, recent events have shown that this gamble, uh, while it may have made sense at the time, uh, is just frankly not paid off. And uh, the pandemic is, is a really useful case study in looking at why. The reason that uh, a lot of politicians in, in Washington, at least by my estimate, are, are rightly frustrated, even angry with the political authorities in China, is that China had the opportunity to deal with this pandemic in a responsible way. And if you look at what happened in Wuhan, the uh, the city where uh, the coronavirus initially broke out, you had authorities silencing doctors instead of empowering them. Uh, you had officials imprisoning medical professionals uh, instead of listening to them. And you had communist authorities at the highest levels in Beijing who looked at their people as the problem instead of their, the virus as the problem. Uh, in, in almost at every single level, uh, China did exactly the opposite of what it, it should have done as a responsible nation in a globalized world. And the reason there's so much happening between the US and China right now is because a lot of leaders in America are beginning to understand that the Chinese Communist Party doesn't have any interest in becoming the type of regime or the type of country that we hoped or wish it would become. And uh, there's a lot of soul searching happening. And uh, the reason that uh, whether it be from the president, from the Republicans, or frankly, from even some Democrats, a lot of uh, pessimism and a lot of really aggressive actions or responses to uh, China right now. It's a reexamination of uh, assumptions we've had for a long time that have just not come to pass. So there's a lot happening. Uh, but I, I think having that perspective helps make some sense of it. Thanks so much for that rundown, Michael. We are definitely thankful that there are people like you and your colleagues keeping an eye on all of these things and helping us make sense of them, especially with so much happening. So in light of talking about what has happened, can you give us any insight into things in the future that we need to be paying attention to and, and what's on the horizon? I think two or three things stand out as particularly important trends to watch. The first is uh, the nature and the pace of China's economic recovery. Shortly after the country began to emerge on the other side of the virus, massive floods uh, have begun to inundate the heartland of China. And uh, Wuhan, which is where all of this started, uh, is, is suffering from these floods as well. And China is having yet another issue that's hurting not just the political credibility of the party, but it's really uh, hampering their ability to recover economically, which is something they have been gambling on over the past few months. Uh, so it'll be really important to watch uh, the floods that are going on in China right now and also uh, whether or not consumption uh, is going to be able to tick up. That's going to be incredibly important for the party. Uh, 
Another thing to watch is not just the heartland of China, but the periphery of China. Americans are used to having very stable and defined borders. This is not the case with China. Uh, China has a very different situation on their borders. Over the a number of centuries, China has grown not just to encompass uh, uh, the heartland of, of what defines China, but Manchuria, which uh, borders uh, Korea and Russia, and then uh, to the north, uh, Inner Mongolia, uh, to the west, Xinjiang, which borders Central Asia, Russia, and a number of other countries, and Tibet. None of this used to be part of China, but now it is. And, and the party has territorial ambitions, not just for securing uh, rest of populations who want their independence from China, especially in Xinjiang and Tibet. Uh, we've seen the crackdown in Hong Kong recently as an indication that the Chinese Communist Party is bound and determined uh, to shore up any uh, talk of independence uh, within uh, China today. And the big thing to keep an eye on now is Taiwan. So unlike, uh, unlike Hong Kong and a, and a number of other territories I just mentioned, Taiwan is a very, very different case study because the United States does not recognize Taiwan as part of uh, the People's Republic of China. And, and for people who aren't familiar with what Taiwan is, it's, it's a small island of about 23 million people just off the coast of China. And, and this is a flashpoint uh, that could have really big ramifications in the next couple of years. Uh, if Xi Jinping, uh, the, uh, the leader of China and the Communist Party, are able to consolidate their gains in Hong Kong, uh, they'll have some flexibility to then turn to uh, the east and shore up their uh, their border and political issues there with Taiwan, which would have a lot of big uh, negative impacts on America's alliance relationships in the region. So watching Taiwan and uh, uh, what China does in its peripheries is going to be really important as well. For the United States, uh, the third thing I'll mention is something to look at moving forward moving away from a reactionary posture is going to be critical. A lot of the tools that we've had and that we've dealt with, whether it be against uh, non-state actors and terrorism uh, or other uh, human rights abusers uh, throughout recent history, these policy tools that we have aren't necessarily as effective uh, as the ones we need right now to be dealing with China. Uh, if we want to get in the driver's seat of this emerging competition, we're going to need to start thinking very creatively uh, and, and look for new ways uh, to compete and to counter. Last question, uh, Michael. I just want to say I'm thankful. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful that you are uh, as intellectually gifted and knowledgeable uh, about this very serious uh, international issue. And so another person I'm thankful for is your wife. Uh, so you guys live and, and work in D.C. Y'all both do policy work. You even co-write pieces together. Uh, so for fun, could you tell us two things about our uh, professional colleague, Chelsea? When did you know you were going to marry her? And if you could pick the next topic of her next book, what would it be about? Oh, man. So uh, y'all can't see me right now, but I'm smiling because this is a topic I always love discussing. My... Uh, my, uh, it is no mystery uh, which uh, which one of us is the better half in our marriage. <laughs> Chelsea is Chelsea is wonderful. So, um, to your first question, 
of uh, when did I know that I wanted to marry her? So it was the night I asked her out on our first date. We uh, we had been friends for probably two years or so before this point. And uh, this is actually a really fun story. We went out because we had a, a wager of sorts. I, uh, I'm i a foodie, diehard uh, foodie. And I was convinced, I was trying to convince her that bacon peanut butter burgers were actually delicious. And and she was having none of it. So I, I, I we made a friendly wager that, okay, uh, you're going to come, uh, you're going to taste this, you're going you're gonna to see if you like it. And then the other side of this was I would then go on a different food adventure that she would orchestrate and organize. So we were at the restaurant. I don't even remember what we were talking about. But what I do remember is having this conversation with, with, with an old friend that was so relaxed and, and I felt like I could be so myself and I was just loving her company so much. And in the midst of that conversation, I had this strange, almost out-of-body experience or realization where I had this internal dialogue with myself and, and I, I said uh, internally, I think I found the woman I want to marry. And uh, I had I was sure of it as I'd been sure of anything else, and uh, that was probably oh gosh, probably like 13, 14, 15 months before we got married. So not that long after that. And uh, to to your second question uh, about which book I would love for her to write next. So uh, for listeners who may not know, uh, my wife Chelsea has written a book uh, called Longing for Motherhood. And it's about uh, uh, not just her, but uh, uh, our experience with uh, childlessness and barrenness as as a couple. But honestly, it's really about Chelsea's experience as a woman and uh, coming to terms with uh, being a follower of Christ and also knowing that natural childbirth just wouldn't be a part of our story together or, or her story. Uh, it, it's a, a I'm biased, but I think it's a it's a really powerful book. So, in terms of uh, what would come next, a um, couple of things come to mind. I uh, I know that she is uh, steeped deeply in the Psalms. Uh, I always see her uh, cultivating her heart and bending her life around that book of the Bible in particular. And I I think it's reflection of who she is because so many of those prayers in the Psalms are are so honest before the Lord. And uh, I, I would love to see her uh, pen some of her observations and some of her thoughts about that book of the Bible in particular. But uh, another thing, uh, Chelsea has had quite the professional uh, journey in Washington. Uh, it's a story for, for her to tell. I don't think it's one for me to tell necessarily, but uh, I think she would have a lot to share about a, a Christian view of work and uh, n- not just how to work unto the Lord or, or how to do a, a, a how to do a good job at work, but to think about work and, and its intersection with the gospel and what it means as followers of Christ to be uh, restoring uh, the world around us now in this life. So I, either one of those topics, I, I think she would uh, I think she would write an exceptionally wonderful book, but frankly, I'll, I'll read anything she writes. <laughs> I would read those books, Michael, but I do have to say, I cannot believe that she agreed to marry you when you introduced her to, what was it, bacon, peanut butter, cheeseburgers? Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> but I will say that this. sounds terrible. Hey, I'll say this. Don't knock it until you try it. So if if the cheese is a it's bridge true. too far, 
I totally get that. But uh, bacon and peanut butter, both very savory, right? And uh, combined with a nice juicy burger, fewer things uh, are, are better. I'm in. Love it. I'm in. Sign me up. <laughs> Let's go. That sounds like a, that sounds like a great, that sounds like a delicious <laughs> time on Capitol Hill. Call me a skeptic, but, but maybe one day. Um, man, this podcast is making me so hungry. Uh, well, Michael, we just want to say thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. We especially appreciate all of your insight about China, and we are also so grateful uh, for you and for Chelsea and your family. You guys are just uh, incredible, and we're just grateful to God for you. And so thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. It's been a really, really fun time speaking with you guys. Thank you for having me on. So now it's time for the lunch, where every week we tell you the things we've been talking about with one another. So I'm actually going to call it and go first this week as I was, um, you know, surfing around on the internet, doing, you know, random things. Here, here are two things that caught my eye. The first one is something apparently called ghost apples. This is a thing I'd never heard of before, but somebody posted online and it says in the Fruit Ridge area of Kent County, Michigan, which I've never been to, uh, these ghost apples occur when freezing rain uh, falls and then envelops rotting apples before they fall off the tree. And these apples then apparently, this sounds bizarre to me, turn pulpy and slip out, but the icy shells are still left hanging. And so I will link to that. You can actually see pictures of these ghost apples, which are things I had never heard of, but basically they are, they look like glass apples hanging from real trees that are frozen. That's one thing. But guys, I don't know if you saw this or not. Curbside Larry, uh, he apparently works at the uh, Barbara Bush Library, and um, we spent so much time talking about uh, Blockbuster that I just couldn't let this go. Curbside Larry, there's a video that they put together. Uh, what you know, and they're just advertising. What can we do to put you in a biography today? It's like he's a car salesman trying to get you to come to the library, get some books, get some DVDs, get some magazines, whatever you need. But if you haven't watched Curbside Larry, uh, it's a thing, and you definitely need to check it out. Okay, so for my lunchroom, it's something that Brent doesn't want me to discuss because apparently we already talked about it months ago, but I didn't care months ago, and now I do. So I'm just going to bring it to listeners' attention because maybe they will care now. <laughs> so this is the ESPN documentary on Michael Jordan that ran several months ago. However, some of us didn't watch it several months ago and are just watching it now that it's on Netflix. And I'm watching it with my husband because he was a big Michael Jordan fan. And it is so fascinating. Warning, there's a little language sometimes. <laughs> he's he's such a big fan. He didn't actually watch this when it came out. Well, we don't have ESPN. Oh, okay. <laughs> we don't pay. He was a Michael Jordan fan when he was little. He's not like the biggest NBA fan. But uh, it's really fascinating. It's just fascinating to me the way that God gifts certain people. Like I could never do what Michael Jordan does, did, or any of his teammates, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman. It's just amazing, their athletic ability. Are you kidding and, me? And um, what, he, what he did, what he single-handedly destroyed the Monstars. Who are the Monstars? Guys, my, I watched Space Jam this weekend. I don't know who the Monstars are. Ne next week, Lindsay's going to bring Space Jam <laughs> as her lunchroom item. <laughs> oh, yeah. I do know that. I haven't watched Space Jam since I was like five. Sorry, kids. <laughs> I did love Space Jam. Though. I believe I can fly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I just thought that I would bring this back to listeners' attention in case they uh, didn't watch it when it originally came out. It is fascinating. Fascinating look at 
what went into Michael Jordan, his career, and I have learned that he's now worth $1.6 billion. All right. The thing that I'm bringing uh, to the lunchroom this week is is just a little more current. Uh, that's, I mean, that's what I would say, uh, you know, as opposed to, to Lindsay's, which is just a, a few months old. I mean, it was only the highest rated ESPN production in like the last few years. Uh, so, I mean, lots of folks probably... Listen, what I can tell you, Brent, is that I'm not captive to what's currently going on in culture. I go at my own pace. You're just a cultural lemming. That's true. And (laughs) look, I mean, look, wasn't it last week Josh recommended Leviticus? Just want to point out that this is a culture podcast. These things come back And that's way older than the ESPN documentary. All right. So the the thing I'm bringing is uh, something that caught the attention of many folks on social media this week. Two teachers at Monroe County High School in Georgia debuted a rap video this week to welcome students back to online school. And honestly, I got to tell you, the, the, the singing, the choreography, the production, everything about it, I mean, they've clearly put some time in, uh, into thinking through this and uh, making sure that uh, it landed when it did. And the thing has over 70,000 retweets on Twitter. Uh, I mean, gosh, I, I, teachers are... Un- to- retweets on Facebook? Yeah, I'm not on Facebook. I don't know what you get on Facebook. Get a get a bunch of comments <laughs> or something. It's not a retweet. It's not a retweet? No, there's retweets on Twitter. That's what I said. I know that. I'm just pointing out the obvious, Brent, Mr. Culture yeah. Master. You only <laughs> retweet on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> well, so anyways, teachers are, especially in this moment, they are... Uh, some of the unsung heroes of society. And I just appreciate uh, these two teachers going the extra mile to to do something a little bit special for their students uh, who are trapped, <laughs> trapped in 2020 like the rest of us. Just as a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your podcast app and leaving us a rating or review. But for Brent and Lindsay and myself, we want to say thanks so much for listening and we'll be back next week with more content.